I think I should I could do it better. Samuel Cadenac. Cadenac? Just Cadenac. Cadenac. Catnack. Are you going to say my name or am I going to say it? I should probably say your name, right? I'm sitting here with Samuel Catnack. Catnack. Samuel? Sam? Vieriel. Can you say Vieriel? Oh. <laughs> so you can be like, uh, my name is Wobbly Raycast. So I'm sitting here with Samuel. I'm sitting here with, I don't know, how do I, how do we go? All right, I got it. I got it. <clears throat> Welcome to the Whitecast. My name is Sky Hopinka, and I am here with a former summer language intensive intern. Would you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, my name is Samuel Villarreal Katnak. I'm uh, from the Pueblo of Pauaki, which is here in New Mexico. It's about uh, 20 minutes north of the capital city of Santa Fe. So you were an intern for 2016 summer language intensive in Atka, Alaska, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, what was that like? It was awesome. It was it was awesome, but it wasn't what I expected. But at the same time, it was what I was hoping for. There was a lot of things. So I'm here from New Mexico, which is a desert, mountainous area. And it's very dry, very arid. There's very little water around. And so I flew out to this island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that's very isolated. It takes a while to get to. There's only 60 people on the island. The environment is not the opposite, but it's very different than here. Surrounded by ocean, tundra, there's no trees. Yeah, it wasn't a culture shock or anything like that, but it was just different. And but it was but it was enjoyable. So yeah, so it was like you, Evan, Susanna, and two other interns, three other interns. Yeah, two other interns, Robin and Aaron, and yeah, they're both from Canada. What sort of things were you doing every day? So before we even got to Adka on on Alaska which is the island before getting to Atka. We were sort of stranded there because of the weather. The weather has to be like just right to get to Atka, to and from Atka. So we were stuck on on Alaska for several days. And basically we started our training there in the hotel and in the airport. We would go to the airport every day to see if they were going to fly out. And so Evan and Susanna basically started training us. I remember one day they're like, okay, let's head to this empty spot of the hotel and we sat at a table and they started explaining everything to us and yeah so it started there we started um basically learning the wake technique through strictly uh, sign language so basically no talking if, if i can remember correctly and then we flew into atka i think evan might have went before us and then we got to the house and we just started unpacking everything getting the house all set up I got a tour of the island by some of the people there. And then from there, we started setting up the school. And it was interesting because we were supposed to have, I think, the whole school to ourselves, but there ended up being this team. I can't remember what they were doing. They were, like, doing some kind of testing or so of, of, like, the... I think it was, like, World War II stuff there that they were finding and doing whatever with. So we were sort of relegated to, like, two classrooms. And we had to share the building with them. We ended up putting, like, these makeshift walls made of like i think styrofoam or something covering them in construction paper trying to trying to isolate ourselves a little bit the sound and all of that 
and then we basically got to work and we we would get up in the morning we had to set schedule not only at the school but at the house where we had chores and we had like team meal prep and all of that was really fun actually who were the community members you were working with so the main speaker we were working with was sally her daughter crystal and then there were a few other elders who were speakers who would we would work with on a certain day they would come in i think maybe thursdays or something and the main group that we were trying to teach were three high school boys they were basically our target audience and we're working with them and there was also a girl from another island i can't remember what island she was from but her name was bobby and she was a younger girl and she wasn't an intern but she was sort of like an informal intern who who went out there and was basically doing everything we were doing yeah and so every single day we we had our own team meeting at the wake house everything was super organized by post-its and calendars and all these things and we had this thing where we basically i can't remember what it was called but it was like, these are the things I like. These are what I don't like. This is what you can do to make me feel better. Something like that. And we had all these post-its with our own color. Everything was color-coded so that to make everything as efficient as possible and you could understand who was who, was who um, what was what. And that translated into the actual lessons at the school as well. Everyone had their own color. We had the calendar up. Um, so everyone knew where they were and when and where they were supposed to be by looking at their post-it, the color, and it had what they were supposed to be doing on the post-it. They they had already evidenced it and it had already been there a few times before, so they already had like a set, um, some lessons already in progress at the very beginning. So we just started going over those and then we started progressing. And then we started hunting and making new lessons, which is really cool. Um, And we would break up with Sally and then I think also Crystal and I'm not sure if there was someone else when the other speakers came in we they would we would work with them as well to hunt from them I'm gonna take it back a little bit I mean like what got you into language revitalization like when did your interests in your heritage language start so growing up so I'm from the Pueblo of Pauake which is a Tewa speaking community there's there's six Tewa speaking communities here in New Mexico we're all really close to one another. Um, and I I went to a day school of another community called San Aldefonso. So I went to San Aldefonso Day School for about six years. It was there that I first started learning Tewa. I remember learning certain words and things like that. But it wasn't really ever a big part of my life. Like no one at home spoke or anything like that. So it was just something that was at school. Um, and it was sort of just like there in the back of my head. Like, I knew a few words, whatever. And then I remember as I got older, they would have language programming in Pauake that I would attend sometimes, but it was still just sort of just there. And then I then I went to um, to pursue my undergraduate degree. And toward the end, towards the end of that degree, I started taking Native American Studies courses, um, which had nothing to do with my degree, but I was just interested in it. And it was something my prompted by my grandpa, all the things he talked about, like, Indian law and all these things and I was like I I should take some classes before I leave but it sort of shifted my trajectory of my degree in music and um, I started learning about these things that I was connecting the dots to my own experience and so when I went back home after graduating I worked at our tribal museum and cultural center just sort of as like a in-between thing until I figured out what I was going to do next and I ended up staying there 
and I liked it. Um, I just ended up working in the museum, but then I started moving into actually giving tours and learning way more about Pueblo history in general, and then trying to do more research on my own community's history. And at the same time that I was there, they had just hired a new language coordinator, and we shared an office. And so she sort of became my mentor, Virgie Bigby from Tesuki Pueblo, which is another Tewa-speaking Pueblo just 10, min- 10, 15 minutes from Pewaukee. I guess that's when it re- the ball really started rolling. Sh- she had a language committee put together. The Pueblo had an ANA grant for language immersion um, in their early childhood center at Pewaukee. And I was basically helping in any way I could. I was helping her put the language... Uh, the community language nights together and helping her carry those out. And I was basically just getting as much table as I could. And so I was always asking her things and she was always encouraging me. And it's like, if I, if I don't do it and the other people who are, who might be doing it, what if they stop doing it? I, it's not something that I want to leave in the hands of other people. If I have the time and the means to do something about it. Well, how did you find out about where your keys or like what about it made you want to apply for the summer language intensive? So I had never heard of where your keys before. Um, I did an internship at the National Museum of the American Indian in D.C. And one day I got an email. They just like sent out these email blasts or whatever. And it said something about Alaska. Maybe it said language revitalization in Alaska or something like that. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. So I clicked it and I read about it. And I was like, that sounds really cool. I looked at the website and I was like, whoa, what is this? And they had like sign language going on. and But I still really didn't get what was happening. Anyway, I applied and then I ended up getting a, like a Skype interview or whatever. I got it. And I was in a position at that time to actually do it because I was in my graduate degree at that time. And I was able to put this this internship towards my degree. So I was able to get a stipend out of it and support my way through the summer. So so it worked out really well. Where were you getting your degree at and in what? So I worked at the Poe Museum, is the museum I had mentioned earlier that I worked at. I worked there for about three and a half years, and then I applied for a few um, programs, and I ended up deciding on going to Arizona State University to pursue a master's originally in public history, but then I ended up changing about a year in into American Indian Studies. So like after after the internship, I don't know, like what was your relationship to that? I mean, do you feel like you learned enough where your keys or um, to help get you started? Or what was the process of working with another language too, you know? Yeah, so being that my path into language was sort of just by chance. I really had no idea what was what. I was just sort of learning whatever I could, however I could. And so when I did where your keys and went to ATCA, a few things happened. So so prior to Where Your Keys, I had taken a few language um, courses and like workshops and things like that. Immersion was always pushed as like the, the way to go for language acquisition. But it had never really been carried out in at least my language learning. And I think that was because most people don't have formal training in that type of stuff. So they have experience in language teaching and there's fluent speakers but they don't really have the tools to be in full immersion because there's a hiring of so many teachers and curriculum and all these different things that they might not have access to. And so sometimes when it comes down to one-on-one, it's you can stay in immersion, but then you get stuck and then you sort of come out of it. When I was there and over the course of the summer, like my whole 
the way I thought about language learning had sort of solidified into like immersion is the way to go. And now I have tools to make it happen. And so, so now I'm like dead set on immersion and I'm starting to learn that I need to back, back it up a little bit in order to get people interested. Cause if I just stick in immersion, people are mm-hmm. not turned off, but like overwhelmed, intimidated. Overwhelmed. Yeah, exactly. And they don't want to, it hurts. It's hard to keep them engaged. In terms of where your keys in particular, w- once you get the ideas, there's a lot of stuff going on. Once you get in, in a lot of interesting stuff, like most people would not associate ASL with language learning. Um, and like, why are you signing when you're saying these things and all this other stuff they're used to, most people are used to sitting in a, in a room with the teacher up at the front, maybe saying, this is how you say this, this is how you say that. And so this is a whole different environment where everyone is participating. Everyone has a job. So Evan and Suzanne are like experts in this because this is their thing. So the way they introduced us to it was very, um, smooth we sort of just like they knew the progression of how to take things. Like I said, we started just in ASL, just learning where your keys to strictly ASL, no like talking or anything. And I was like, oh, I get this. It's really cool. And then when we got into language, it just, it was, there was like no gap in the learning process. Um, but what I found is that when I came back home, taking those tools and applying them to my language wasn't, first of all, it's not, easy just to do because I'm not a fluent speaker myself. I think if I were a fluent speaker, I would be like, oh, I could do this lesson and this and that. But as not being, but not being a fluent speaker is sort of like, okay, how do I, what, what place do I start? What are the props? And I was still in graduate school, so it was sort of hard to dedicate that much time to it. It wasn't as, as fast of a turnaround as I was hoping. But actually one thing that did happen is I was working, so I was in my graduate degree program when I did this internship. And one thing that happened was when I got back, I got this job as an academic mentor for a cohort of students from Gila River Reservation out there in Arizona. And so my boss asked me if I wanted to teach a class on this method. And I was like, I'll do it, I guess. My, my, why not? And this was with uh, their language, which, again, I knew nothing about. Just like going to ATCA, I didn't know anything about the language before I got there. And so I'm trying to think like, okay, my first thing is I'm going to go buy a bunch of props. So I did that and I got as many things as I could get. And it was basically trial and error. It was like, okay, what's the best way to do this? And I was trying to explain to them. So the first thing, what I actually did is I took, so in ATCA, we had this um, intro lesson of like, we had all these props set up that show the way Nigugam Tanu, the language of ATCA works. So there's this, there's this, there's these three different parts that words end with, and it's either ach, ich, or uch. And so we had props that represented those different sounds. And it was sort of like, hey, everyone, welcome to Language Night. Um, your language works in a very cool way, and everything has a, a specific ending to it. It's either ach, ich, or uch. And then we had people repeat that. And then we went into, this is how you say, what is that? And so we did this little lesson that sort of introduced very a very basic introduction into the method and with a quick lesson. And so I sort of took that model and applied it to this class. Um, and I actually did it with Nigugam Tunu because I knew how to carry it out. And I was like, well, we're not going to do it in your language. We're going to do it in this language that I know, at least this this one little piece, um, just to get them to see how it was working. Because 
they're trying to learn their language. So to me, it's no different to learn this other piece for this for the for the reasoning of showing them how this method worked. And it actually worked pretty well for that first day. And as we progressed, then we got speakers in because it was a little hard to get speakers at first. But then we had two two consistent speakers who would always show up, and they were really really good to work with. And there were sometimes when the class didn't go that great, but there were sometimes when it were, uh, at least I made b- breakthroughs in how the language was working. We ended up coming with one lesson by the end of the semester, and it was Shaipai Masma. How are you? And then we had like several answers of Manyasapa, which is like I'm good, and then I'm sick, I'm mad, and we sent it around, and it mostly went pretty well and and getting the angels and things it mostly went pretty well but the main thing was the prep time the lack of prep time if I had prep time and I I never once had the chance to like sit with the with the speaker and hunt like the job didn't allow for that there was no time and I was in school and everything so it was really cool to get the opportunity but the time wasn't there to make it as successful as it could have been um, but it taught me a lot in terms of like, how am I going to translate this into Tewa? And so what I found out, at least in my own experience, was the first thing I need to do is the little booklet they have for the, the filled, filled book. You know, the little white book. Which filled book? Filled notes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Filled notes. And then the other side is like English. Right. Oh, the little handbook that yeah. um, Evan and Susanna put out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So in that book... There are 10 like key questions that you can translate and you should translate just like at the get-go. And one of them is like, what am I doing? Or what is this? What am I doing? Am I saying this right? How would you make it into a question? Things like that. So these very fundamental phrases that you would use in the language to keep, to hunt. And so I like at, at a few, after a few classes, I'm like, okay, we need to translate these because then we can really start doing something. And actually was the right step to make. And so when I got into Tewa, I was like, the first thing I need to do is get these translated. And it's been really helpful. Like, what is that? Hey, Anamu. And I am able to ask that a lot. And now I'm starting to get answers and I'm starting to go into Hey, Anamu. And then, and, and then make me say yes, make me say no. And then who is this? But I still haven't really had a, a chance to really hunt and wear your keys with Tewa yet. There's only been like, a couple of opportunities you really have to get like undivided attention and because sometimes i'm just going to visit people for another purpose mm-hmm. it's not really for language learning it's like and so when they see you sitting down pulling these props out and it's like okay what's going on here because the usual way of learning is like how do you say this and they'll just tell you and that's the end of it but if the whole hunting process is like okay you have to have some patience and like what is this person doing so that has yet to happen but i'm still hopeful everything is is going well but Back to Atka, the whole experience of going to Atka to this community that's not mine made me appreciate my community more just to see like how much we still have intact and all the language we have intact. Not that they don't, but just to just to be in a place that where it is not my language and then the whole thing of learning this technique with a language that's not your own and that you're not necessarily invested in. So... Not that you don't care. I definitely cared about it. It was just that it wasn't, each decision wasn't like life or death because this is their decision to make. I don't have to worry about that stuff. Like what they can make whatever decision they want about their language. 
But if it were a table and someone said, we're going to do this or that, then I would have like a really strong opinion of wh- why or why not. And I didn't have that stress of thinking like anything getting political or anything like that. It was sort of like strictly language learning. There was none of that, all those other layers that usually keep language learning from growing and moving forward. So that was that was a big uh, takeaway from that. So going to work with Nigugam Tanu made it clear that this is possible because from my own experience, even though I had been with in Pawaki working with this mentor of mine for several years, I had only made a little bit of progress in terms of being able to take Tewa and use it the way I wanted to. And so I was learning a lot of words using a dictionary, but never never having a real true sense of like why things are said this way or what the structure is or how to change it in different situations. Like this is possible. We just need the tools to be in immersion. And we need the resources as well. And sometimes it's hard to get those two things together at the same time. So then coming back to Powaki, you're going to have the political stuff of well, this is what I think we should do with the language. This is why this should or shouldn't happen or whatever. Um, being that I'm a learner with intention to learn my language as fluently as I possibly can, I don't really need, at least for my own learning, I don't, I don't, all of that other stuff doesn't really matter. I can do whatever I want. If I can find the speaker who's willing to teach me, I can learn whatever method I want. And so my hope is that if, if things don't start to grow and move forward within the community as a whole in terms of language learning, that my, my plan is just to become a teacher on my own and go from there. But I don't think that'll, that'll happen. I think things will start to change and people will see there is a way for it to move forward, but it does take patience and it does take a, an open mind. And actually that the way we've been doing things isn't really in line with our own ways of teaching right like decolonizing yeah pedagogy yeah working towards that Mm -hmm. and moving more towards like a pueblo based indigenous way of teaching and learning of learning through doing not explanation and so that's something that i found very found out very quickly of where your keys was that everything evan was explaining everything we were talking about i'm like this is basically and in, 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 maybe it's not created by an indigenous pr- person, but that doesn't matter. It falls in line with indigenous ways of doing in terms of learning, actually going out and doing it and experiencing it, not looking at a piece of paper and thinking that that's the same thing. You're using props, you're acting things out, you're, you're actually making coffee for someone, you're actually making tea for someone. Maybe you're not going to drink the tea, but you're going through the process and everyone is there together in the room, they're doing these things. And you're creating the environment so that this thing can actually happen. You're not just imagining it. Let's let's pretend that this is happening. Let's actually go and get these things and make it happen and talk about it in the language. You're currently an intern at the School of Academic Research? Uh, School for Advanced Research. School for Advanced Research in the Indian Resource Center? Indian Arts Research Center. <laughs> <laughs> A few days ago, you gave me a tour of the pottery collection, uh-huh. and you were telling me a bit about your interest with with the the pottery from Powaki and from your region, and how that can be applied to teaching and learning languages. Would you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So, so I started working out working 
working at the the Poe Museum in Pauake. Um And then I interned at the National Museum of the American Indian. So I sort of had this like history of being in museums and got my degree. Basically there I, I made it like language is my passion. This is what I wanted to be doing. So when I got this internship at um, the Indian Arts Research Center, basically I'm there to learn museum studies methodologies with this collection they have from the Southwest. And so I'm thinking, how can I bridge this museum collection that I'm here learning about and how to take care of with my real passion of language revitalization? What I came up with is that in where your keys, props are like a main component of getting objects, tangible objects, and holding them in your hand and talking about them and having the speaker describe them and asking questions about them and doing all these other things. So I'm like, well, there's no reason we can't take these um, cultural materials that are in this collection and do the exact same thing. Um, But this time it's more culturally relevant to the language that's being spoken. And so I'm sort of seeing this as you start off with everyday objects just like you would and should cups, spoons, rocks, whatever. And then at some point, starting to get into this more culturally relevant material that that the language is sort of made to work with. Mm-hmm. Because these are materials that these things were made with that have been, been used for millennia. Um, the iconography, the designs in general, the process for making the different things, whether it be pottery or rugs or whatever. Um, that it would be a a component at some point in the fluency freeway mm-hmm. of moving into that more culturally relevant stuff. Um, once you have the basics down, at least, because then you could sit there instead of making a pot of coffee, you can make a pinch pot or make a small, you can make a painting, whatever. You can make the pot that you make the coffee in. Yeah. That's it, yeah. yeah. When, when you're talking about that, it's just, I thought it was really exciting because like you said, it's so culturally relevant. It's so imbued in the language. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going to your pottery class the other night as well, like that was, that was really great to see, like just the whole process, and then just a you know a group of, of, of people getting together every Tuesday and Friday mm-hmm. uh, to make pots, and you found out that your pottery teacher is a fluent speaker. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to take this pottery class. Um, so my approach is. The only way the language can be revitalized if other things are being done with it as well, other things that are connected to it. Mm-hmm. So it can't just be, I'm learning the language, but I don't know anything about pottery. I don't know anything about farming. I don't know anything about anything. So I'm trying to, any opportunity I get to learn about other aspects of my culture, I take advantage of because it only reinforces, they only reinforce one another. That's sort of like a model of for thinking about revitalization, cultural revitalization in general of if the language is going away, then the ceremonies are going to go away. If the ceremonies are going to go away, then at some point, potentially, the land can go away. So all these things are interconnected. You can't just have one without the other. And right now, I think we're sort of in this state where, um, not to be too pessimistic, but it can seem like sometimes people, myself included at times, that English is fine. We can speak English and still do everything we did before and move forward as a community and that will be here later on and we'll still have our culture intact. But language, at least from an indigenous perspective, is more than just a form of communication. It's the land that we live on is where the language came from and the language informs how we interact with the land. 
um, which provides us with everything we need. So there's just like this cyclical process going on that we might not be aware of all the time. There are times when something in this uh, chain of this, this process breaks and the only way to repair it is to be looking at all these aspects. Yeah, that's really important. I mean, it's, you know, it, it isn't just language revitalization, it's just like community culture revitalization and like to separate each of these things out, whether it's, you know, just focusing on culture, just focusing on language, just focusing on history is doing a disservice to each one of those things in a lot of ways. And like, yeah, like that holistic approach is really important too. Like what you said about just being like pessimistic in some ways, but not, but language or English is good enough for right now because we have all these other things. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, I mean, language is one of the most intangible aspects of culture because, you know, you can't, you can't hold it. You can't touch it. You just, you speak it, you think it, you feel it. Yeah. And my, my thinking is that the reason we have, the reason the language is so fragile is because it's so intangible. Um, like you said, I went to this pottery class. The pottery classes are held all the time. There's people making pottery. Not not to the degree that it used to be, but it's not something that people talk about as being in danger mm-hmm. or other art forms. That's because you can create it and it's there. And you can hold it and you can see it. You can sell it and you can get money for it. You can buy other things with it. You can support yourself with it. You can use it in ceremony. There's 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 like a... There's like a life it has that is like you can see what it's doing. Um, language is a lot more complicated in that you don't get, seemingly you don't get the return as quickly. Right. The benefit of like, okay, I said this in this language instead of this one. What What's the difference? It's, it's funny too. It lines up with like the analogy that Evan gives where, you know, like the travels with Charlie, like, you know, the actual scale. It's it's like showing language learners what that finished basket is. When you talk about a superior level of fluency, you're trying to give examples of like what this looks like. And the analogy is you go to a, a pottery class, you go to a basket weaving class, the teacher always shows you the finished products and says, this is what you're going for. This is what you're trying to do. And in language, there there isn't that. You know, It's an example of like conversation and thought processes, but you don't really understand that until you're there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's just like another level of, or it is. It is. It was like funny, like how these things align in that way. Yeah. Yeah. What What would your next steps be for you know integrating these further? Whether it's like you know pottery, um, language, and these community gatherings. The whole thing about things being interconnected and my approach is, I'm trying to make it a holistic one. In that, before this internship, the one I'm doing right now at the Indian Arts Research Center, I, I don't really know much about pottery or any of these other things. Like I've worked in museums before exhibit installation things like that but actual the actual items themselves and the history of them and just like the scope of what Pueblo people have made and looking at all the because all of the Pueblos are represented in this collection all all 19 of them you just get a real sense of like the importance of this type of stuff I've taken classes at the Pope before and they've been really useful so this is just another step in continuing on this a holistic approach so in going to make the, this pottery I was like it'd be nice if he was a, if my teacher was a speaker but I don't I don't think he is maybe he is I don't know and we, we would talk a little bit in Tewa but it was never enough to really know if he was a fluent speaker and I didn't really want to just ask outright because it just felt weird to be like do you speak Tewa mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but anyway, the other night we found out that he is a fluent speaker. And so that sort of like was a huge, important revelation because now it's not, I'm just not going there to, to learn pottery. I can actually punt from my teacher. And he knows that I'm interested in language. And he's already a teacher, so he, he gets the concepts of being a teacher in general. I'm going to take as much advantage, as advantage of this as much as I can from here on out and basically try to use as much table as I possibly can until he gets pissed off or something. <laughs> <laughs> when you're explaining, you know, your whole process or your whole interest, it's, it seemed like he was right on board and really into it. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking to him about the warrior keys method, the immersion method, and he was talking to us about the problems he's seen and some of the classes that are held in the communities and how they're just not, they're not in line with the way he thinks that it should be happening. Cause as a fluent speaker, the whole writing system doesn't make sense. Um, and that's that's the interesting thing about weird keys because when, when you do language learning, at least in the traditional sense, it's the first thing is a piece of paper and a pencil. And it's like, okay, we're going to learn the language. It's not like the writing is like the 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 priority and the speaking is like sort of like, well, we'll get to that or something. Mm-hmm. As long as I have it on this piece of paper, then I have it. And I can take it with me and I'll learn it at some point or something. It's like you have it. Yeah, it's like, it's like making it into an object or into the tangible. Yeah, in some yeah. Ways. exactly. So yeah, it's taking this intangible, quote unquote, intangible thing and making it tangible. You write it down. And so I think that's a super Western way of thinking of like going into a library and you have all these books and like this is knowledge. Right. Unless you read all the books and you understand how to interpret it and process it, it's just there. It's just sitting there. Right. It's an object to be owned or possessed. Yeah. And that's sort of exactly what happens with language dictionaries. Right. Communities are so eager to make these dictionaries because it's somehow making their language tangible and that it's safe. But in reality, and it, and it's not that it, the process shouldn't happen, but it shouldn't happen for the reasons that it does happen a lot of times. Yeah, I remember when I was learning Chinook, Evan told me that I can look at a dictionary when I could make an argument for it in Chinook. I still, I still peaked a little <laughs> bit, but <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, it, it, it helps me think about you know what my addiction was—not addiction, but just like you know what my desire was to have you know see the written word and to you know have what I was saying validated by this, which is totally fair and it totally does in some ways, but. At the same time, too, it's just like I, I didn't need to know that then. Like I didn't need to learn words that I wasn't ready to, to, to use or concepts I wasn't ready to wield yet. So that's a super important part because when I was learning with Virgie, my sense is like, what does this mean? What does that mean? What does this mean? And sometimes she'd be like, I don't know how to say it in English. Right. And I remember when, before I even went to ATCA, I was talking to Evan on the phone or video chat or something. And we we're sort of, I don't know how we got to it, but he was sort of like, it's the whole, um, sorry, Charlie, talking about ideas that you can't even, you're, you're, you're trying to get to a level of fluency that is like, it's pointless to even try to understand it when you can't even speak basic things in the language. And so something, I, he, I can't remember exactly how he said, it. it's like calling someone on the phone who doesn't know what a bicycle is and trying to describe it to them and how to ride it. And you're like, what? Yeah, yeah. And so it made, it, it was like, it made so much sense to be like, why talk about these high level ideas when I can't even create basic sentences? It doesn't make any sense. But we get the satisfaction of having it translated like, oh, now I know what it means. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, you really don't. Right. 
you don't really, you're not thinking in the language about it like the speaker is. And so that's why she couldn't translate certain things because they dish, they don't make sense in English. But I think once you get it in the language and you see it used in context and you really have it ingrained in your head, it just works. Because there were things I learned in Nagugam Tunu that were never translated and I don't have an English translation for them, but you know what they are mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah, and then you just don't need to translate them, but rather you can just like then think about how you would explain or teach someone else how to arrive at the same sort of understandings. Yeah, like when you're a kid, you learn phrases and you learn to say things. You don't have an explanation of why am I saying this thing? You just do it. Right, yeah. It's the exact same thing, but as adults, we want, but what does it mean? But what does it mean? What is this? Yeah, I mean, especially too, like, you know, it's just, it's a return to superior in some ways. Like when you get full and you're learning language and you're just using like, you're doing like, what is that? You know, want, have, give, take, all that. And Mm -hmm. you get full and you want to return to superior and talk about what you're just doing in English Mm -hmm. because that helps you unfill Mm -hmm. in a similar sort of way. Talking at a superior level in English about a language that you don't know. Um, and those concepts that you're not ready f- for, it, it, it is a way to try and, you know, weld some authority or to make yourself feel like you're making some sort of progress because you can talk about it in those ways, mm-hmm. which is an important part of it. I, I love sitting around philosophizing about language, but at the same time, it's just, it's really healthy to balance that with, you know, getting in the weeds and, you know, making a whole bunch of mistakes and struggling with how fascinating being the, 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 the goal but just, you know, really trying to, to, to earn those how fascinating moments. So tonight, it's really interesting. I was at a grocery store earlier getting dinner. And I was like looking at this cookie and I'm like, oh, I want to get this cookie. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden I hear this voice saying, Osha, Osha, Osha. And I'm like not processing it. I'm like hearing it. And I'm like, I, I've recognized that what they're saying, but it's not really clicking. And I look up and it's someone I recognize from another community saying, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, hey. And then I was like, I don't know. I was like, I know what you're saying, but I was, I couldn't process it. And, and else, and then he was like, yeah, who else? Like, when, when would you expect to hear table and Whole Foods? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then whenever we talked about things, but I was thinking about it. I'm like, and this has happened before where, and this is another argument for immersion. You can sit down, say, how do you say this? How do you say, how are you? And they'll, they'll tell you in English and you write it down. And you might say it once in a while, but it's very intentional. And because the language is so seldomly spoken that you're in control because you're the one using it. You're the one initiating it. And it's very rare to go to someone and they start speaking table to you first. And so you don't have that experience of of it turning into a natural thing where you hear, if someone say, hey, what's up? I automatically, there's no thinking. I know exactly what they're saying. I know exactly what I need to say mm-hmm. or whatever. Good morning, whatever. But when it's in a language you're just learning, the gap between them saying it and you, your brain having to process it is like pretty large. So I know what Osha means and I say it to my son sometimes, but it's not, it's not used too much. And so he's saying it to me and like my brain is just like, I sort of know, I don't know, it's just floating around. And also I didn't know he was talking to me. If I had seen him, who he was, I know where he's from, he's saying Osha, it would have been a lot faster. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it was just interesting to be in that situation of like, this is why immersion is important. This is why 
speaking to one another and getting that experience of like hearing it come out of someone's mouth and then you understanding what they're saying and you saying, giving a reply to them back in the language. Instead of, how do you say this? They translate it for you. You you say it a few times in class and you walk away. There's no interaction happening. There's no back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I remember those times pretty vividly, like when I would be surprised by the language or just like someone would surprise me with the language and I wasn't ready for it. And yet you're totally right. Yeah, it's just like, it, you know, it's totally discombobulating and disconcerting, but like in a really, you know, exciting way. Yeah. In a really beautiful way too, because it's just, it's like a moment you're you're in that time period or time frame or just that, 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 that second where it's just, it's like what the language is supposed to be used for in some ways where it's just wake up you know yeah and it's so it's so fitting to be like wake up because (laughs) (laughs) my brain was not ready yeah you're thinking about cookies yeah to take in table at that second and it's also interesting when you approach a table speaker and you're like oh i'm gonna say this to them like hey how are you and they say how are you what are you up to today and you're like oh shit i don't know that (laughs) (laughs) yeah I remember I would do that a few times like in, in Ho-Chunk or, or Chinook and just I get a whole bunch back I'm like oh yeah yeah uh huh yeah. uh-huh. yeah yeah so yeah like I mean what is next for you like what what are your plans like with, with the class or just you know community language night type stuff getting a wing person so me and you were talking about this a little bit of how to train or how to make someone familiar with the methods you're using so that they can start helping you without killing a bunch of fairies and but you were like you were talking about you sort of have to kill these fairies up front so that when the actual process is happening there's less of that and so i'm trying to figure out how that what that looks like because i remember when we were learning the very beginning stages wake with evan and susanna it was all through asl and there were there was a few fairies killed at the very beginning but they had this method of like introducing it that was so fluid that that's what I need to take and get familiar with of like, like, what is that? That's pretty simple to convey with just expressions and things like that. But then you start getting into more complicated things and that's where the setups and things come in. I sort of need someone who is open-minded to doing this and really wanting to learn that we can meet on a somewhat regular basis. And that's sort of hard to find sometimes. I mean, like there's a technique, I forget the name of it, but it's something like, look how easy you made this. I mean, where it's like any person that you teach is gonna learn twice as fast as you as you did. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, in some ways, like you're making that sacrifice of, you know, having a lo- having tons of fairies killed, having a lot of different concepts translated and trying to like, navigate which what the perfect path is going down rabbit holes chasing some deer running into bears you know all those different metaphors for just you know hunting language and trying to get as fluent as you can um when it hasn't been done before mm-hmm. and so any wing person that you get or any other person that you teach whether it's you know someone a few students down the line or the next person you engage with it's going to be easier for them because you did this work and their students, it's going to be even easier. It's going to be even faster. And like their students, it's going to be yeah. so much more faster. Yeah, yeah that's what I was, I was mentioning earlier, but I need to move away a little bit. Not, not away from the concept of immersion, but take a step back and think of like, not everything has to be in pure immersion. Mm-hmm. Because the point is to get the ball rolling, not to 
learn everything in its purest form. Because that hasn't been happening for so long that it's not a big deal if I kill some fairies to get to get other people on board with what I'm doing. Yeah, you, you sort of get... When, when you, at least for me, when you go into a, an internship with the people who created the method, everything is so set up for you that it goes very smoothly. Mm-hmm. And when you do it, it's very clunky. And you sort of have to like let go of that. You have to do the best you can. And then you learn along the way, like I was doing with this students in Arizona. And I'm starting to see like, oh, if I do it this way, if I do it that way. But it would be helpful to return back to Evan and Susanna to really reevaluate things and relearn things. Um, get more experience with it. Because two and a half months is really not that much time. Like we did do language day in and day out. Um, but then when I, like I said, when I went back to school, it was sort of like back to normal life. There were no table speakers in Arizona. I sort of had to like do the method with just myself of like thinking like, what could I do here? Like, oh, how do I do this? But there's no real, there's no one to talk to. I think it might've been different if I went, went to Alaska and then I went straight back into my community with like people ready just to go. Mm-hmm. That would have been a lot different. Like being a native person going to different native communities, you know, you know, you from Pewaukee, New Mexico, Southwest, going to Alaska, middle of the Bering Sea. Like, what has that been like? And like, what sort of, I don't know, like, what sort of things have you encountered along the way? You know, especially if you have you traveled around with these different communities. I've learned that I really like to be around native people, other native people, because there's like this, there's like this this baseline understanding that we have with one another of how to interact with one another. Like values are very similar. The details and the specifics of the culture are different, but the history of like how we identify with one another is very similar. So our ability to start getting along with one another very quickly and understanding where each other's coming from is like, it's very smooth. But then when you start getting into particulars of communities and politics and things like that then then it's sort of like then you know okay this is a different community right their specific history is different their language is different their foods they eat are different the people they interact with are different um like the surrounding communities and things like that but it's cool to see that the diversity of native people and to be able to experience cultures that aren't your own because like we have that baseline understanding but there really is like profound differences, especially when you see um, them performing dances or just talking about the foods they eat or, like I said, just the partic- the specific histories of their communities. Yeah, it's it's nice to have like those threads too between diff- going to different communities, like you know, and that thread being language or just you know, there's a constant or uh, a shared passion or desire for this particular very specific language or culture do you have any I mean do you have any advice for any like interns going to a different native community I mean so whether they're native or non-native this is like my rule of thumb anyway in life is just to like listen way more than you talk go there and take cues from people don't what is this what is that oh what is this like, who is that? Why did this happen? <laughs> Some people, I don't know. Not not that I experienced this. Like, I didn't, everyone in Atka was awesome. But just sit there and take it in and 
just take the cues from people and be very humble. Being humble is always the best thing. Don't talk about yourself too much. Be excited, but not too crazy. <laughs> just be just be in the middle. Just be balanced. Yeah, just be cool. Yeah, just be cool. Just be just hang out. <laughs> yeah, and to go back to your other question, so going to Atka was really cool because we got into Alaska, Anchorage, and there was like one thing that was really surprising, there's eagles everywhere, bald eagles everywhere. Like the eagle is a very important animal to most communities in North America. And we use, we use the eagle feathers in our buffalo dance and other dances like that. But rarely do I really see an eagle. Um, and they're like everywhere over there. And then going to actually, going to Atka was really cool because everyone gets around in um, four by fours. So that, it's just like th- those particulars of the culture of what it is, even though it might be different than their traditional culture, quote unquote traditional. It's just like this is what they do because this is where they are. And this is this is how they do their th- how they do their stuff, and to see the fishing culture there, and to compare it to like the farming culture in the pueblos, which isn't as prominent as it used to be at all. In our case, for the pueblos, like corn is like the main staple, not only for food but like um, for ceremony and all these other things. And over there, it's all about fish, and you see why the why they are why those things happen. And how they get put into cultures like that have those important places, um, but it's really see the people's connection to it. I think the last question I have for you is: What is your favorite technique, or what technique has been on your mind, or what's your least favorite technique? How fascinating is a, is is a big one to teach other people. I guess that's one for teaching that I think is important to pass on to other people to keep them from getting too freaked out about saying things correctly the other thing is or the other technique is i guess full sentences that's a pretty big one like we were talking about in the pottery class if you say what is that usually people will just say i guess i would say like old book like the full sentences thing is a pretty big part of the immersion experience and process so yeah those are probably two two pretty important ones that's all that I. That's all the questions I have for you, Sam. Thank you so much for speaking with me tonight and for being such a great host this past week. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Um, any last words for for Where Your Keys audience? No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, thanks, Sam. Um, I'll talk to you soon, and hopefully see you again soon. Yeah, definitely. <laughs>